0: Heavenly Father, we're thankful today for your word. We're thankful for the day, for the fact today that your word is sufficient, that it may not tell us every single fact we need to know, but it tells us more than we can understand in most areas, more than we actually need to know overall, and that Father is sufficient to guide us every step of the way through our life and even right to the right to the very end of our life. There's words of a comfort and assurance, there's guidance, there's correction, there's instruction, everything we need to live a life that is Profitable and and pleasing to you, and Father, that's our desire today. Is that we do that, and that we recognize today, especially, as we think of how Christ is so uh, ill thought of in many places, and how to some he's little more than a cuss cuss word, and in many churches, he's little more than a good buddy. But Father, he's more than that. And today, Father, among other things, we trust that that will become more than evident, more than more than trans- more transparent than it's ever been. May this time, Father, together be a profitable time, and may Christ be glorified, in it. we ask in his name. Amen. Now, I I entitled this, The Greatest Battle in History, and by the way, for anyone that would be joining online, you can find this on our church website, and, and if you go here to view documents, you look for that title under my name, The Greatest Battle in History, and you'll find these notes if anyone wants them, or if anybody wants additional copies. So we're going to uh, begin by, we're going to read through our introduction because uh, I think this, this will tie us into where we want to go pretty well. Now the history of mankind is often written in terms of war. When schools used to teach history, you notice I said they used to teach history, it was customary to divide history by wars. For example, a textbook on American history would have a chapter with a title something like the Western expansion from the Revolutionary War to the Civil War. Wars marked the boundaries of history because there were always wars going on somewhere. And sometimes history books would detail important battles that changed the course of history. And, boy, there have been some of those. There have been single battles where the outcome was determined by the genius of a commanding general. Now, I think of Napoleon. He's not the only one, but he's, he's won because he won three key battles in a very short time that, had he not won all three of them, He might not have had the power and the influence that he had for quite some time. But when we think of Napoleon, he won three of his greatest battles against the odds. At the Battle of Austerlitz in 1805, he faced the five nations of Great Britain, Russia, Australia, Prussia, and Sweden. And they were all ready to go to war with him. But through his cunning and his quick attacks, he won a major battle against overwhelming odds. Then in 1806, he won another major battle at the Battle of Jena Oster Oyerstedt. I knew I would say that wrong. I tried to pronounce it Jena Oerstedt, Prussia. Is that close enough, folks? Oerstedt, Anyway, uh, now this was interesting because he moved boldly and he conducted two different battles at different locations. Though he was outnumbered, he defeated the Prussians because he had two different battles. And you can read about this because his, his uh, strategy was amazing. In fact, Robert E. Lee studied, his book, studied the, battle, the, the battle records of this man extensively, and many of the battles in the Civil War that, Lee, that General Lee fought were mo- modeled after what Napoleon did, and they were generally successful. Now, so in 1806... Uh, he fought in two different locations. Then in 1807, this one is interesting to me. Uh, Napoleon was outnumbered and when he was going to the Battle of Friedland in, in Prussia. He was outnumbered and he fa- when he faced an army of 60,000 Russians. Now, I'm not sure exactly how many he had, but I do know from what I saw that he acted quickly. And somehow, through his genius, through his persona, he bolstered his army up to 80,000 men. And because of that, he was able to destroy 40% of the Russian army, 40% of those 60,000 in a crushing, you talk about a crushing victory, 40% lost to one army. That's a loss you're not going to come back from. Now, history records other great generals like Alexander the Great, who probably is even greater than that, because he, all, all he did was conquer Western Europe, Egypt, and part of Asia in 13 years. And I guess they say he moaned the fact that there were no more worlds to conquer, but that may be, that may be myth. I don't know that that's real. But there's one general that's going to surpass them all, and he's going to conduct the greatest battle in history at his return at the close of the Great Tribulation. The Battle of Armageddon will be the battle to end all wars. They talked about World War I, and they thought it would be the war to end all wars. Got one better. This will be the battle to end all wars. So today we want to look at the Book of Revelation and see how this greatest military leader of all human history, who's going to fight the greatest battle in in history, is described. And in the process, I hope that you will remember that this current wicked world is not going to escape the judgment of God because this is the one that's going to come at the end of the tribulation and finish the job. So, this morning we want to start by focusing on the appearance and the identity of of this great leader and how he's described in the book of Revelation. Now, keep in mind, as I said, the book of Revelation has imagery but it is, it is going to be marked by as or like as it describes the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think as you see this, you're going to see something that perhaps most of the time people don't even pay attention to because they're afraid of this book. Please don't be afraid of Revelation. Just take it literally. Look at the figures of speech. Do some serious looking back and forth to see how different phrases and expressions are used. And you'd be surprised that it's not quite as hard as you might think. I'm not saying it's easy. But it's not as hard as some people make it. So, how is this one described? Let's go down to verse 8. We read the first seven verses. We really could have read down and maybe should have read all the way down to 17 or 18. But as he describes, as he describes himself, this is Jesus speaking, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, saith the Lord, who, it says which it should be really, who is who and who was and who is to come, the Almighty, Whew, Quite a description. He's clearly identified. This is not. Uh, this is not just a great leader. This is something way above a great leader. Now, I realize if you have some, some of the translations you have, most of your modern translations omit the beginning and the end. They read on the Alpha and Omega, and they skip that phrase. They leave it out because there's some textual variance in the reading. And the book of Revelation has a lot of variations in it. Uh, some of your modern ones leave it out. The new King James doesn't leave it out. The King James doesn't leave it out. Some don't. Uh, I'm going to treat it as though it's there because I think it should be there. And if it's not there in words, it's certainly there in Alpha and Omega. Now, why, is it, why do I say that? Well, when he says um, Alpha and Omega, if you, if you know the Greek alphabet at all, and some of you folks probably know that, Alpha's the first letter, Omega's the last letter. And so, it's a say, when it says the beginning and the end, well, it's inherent in saying I'm Alpha and Omega. So even if you have a, a version that doesn't have that statement in there, it's still there by what, it, by what you have. I'm the Alpha and Omega, the beginning. That's the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now, what does it tell us about our leader, this, this great general? Well, you'll notice first, if you're following on our notes, I am, is the present tense, and... We use it that way, too. When I say, I am, oftentimes what we mean is, I am continually am this way. I'm going to keep on, I am this way. I'm going to keep on being this way. I've, even in a sense, it almost says, I've always been this way. But it actually just means, I am this way. I'm going to continue to be this way. It's, it's not going to end. I am going to do this. This is what I am. He says, I am. Now, that's, that's a present tense. And he, and he says, I am, and I put in there the beginning. He's the beginning. Now, why is that, would that be important to put in here? Well, go back to John chapter 1. Hold, keep your finger in Revelation. But go back to John chapter 1. The, John's writing is between the Gospel of John, 1 John, and Revelation, you're going to find out an awful lot about the future. You're going to find out an awful lot about the deity of Christ because the Gospel of John is the gospel of the deity of Christ, written for believers to understand just how great this one is. And if we are, if we are awed at the greatness of our Savior then I think we're beginning to understand him. But in John chapter 1, and verse 3, it says, All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now that kind of, that kind of shoots a hole in the Big Bang, doesn't it? Now, I don't know, some of you folks, does anybody here beside me love astronomy and love t- looking at the universe and, and watching, the, there's a whole lot of things on YouTube that they put on, people talking about the universe, and I get the biggest kick out of how they're saying, well, this could have happened, and if this happened, well, then that would have happened, and we think this might happen, and in the future, it's going to end this way, and in the pre-, they say this might, that might, this might, and then you've got this thing called dark energy and dark matter. Now, this was a doozy. I read somewhere where somebody said, well, they can't find the dark energy and the dark matter. They can't find it. They can't prove it. But they want you to believe it. Now, wait a minute. Does science work that way? Is science take something on faith? I thought science was facts. I thought if, you know, well, see, now I can prove there's gravity. See, there it is. Now we can talk about why it works. But the fact that it works is not open to discussion. It works. It's a fact. It's, we have something. But so, you know, it's not the Big Bang, and all things were made by him, and without him, nothing, everything was made, it was made. There's no such thing as an evolution either. Do you see any place for evolution in this? It kind of shoots a hole in all this stuff. If we take this book as being God's Word, and take it seriously and literally, well, if you take it seriously, you do have to take it literally, really, uh, then we're not we're not going to be fooled by any of this stuff. I mean, it's just plain and simple. He's the beginning and the end, but he's the ending. And what is important about that is he's going to be the one that that pulls the plug on everything. When the show is over, he's going to unplug the unit. And it's going to turn off. Well, not exactly turn off. It'll go out different than that. Now, what's interesting, and I put it in the bottom of the of the page here because this is this what what is here colors how the movers and thinkers of our society are running things. They're running it on the ideas of science about the Big Bang and about how it's going to end. And so it affects their thinking. And so many of them, and this one is this one I really like, this is, this is the yo-yo effect. If you want to think of the universe as a big yo-yo, that's how these guys are thinking of it, because they believe that the universe will continue to expand, the force of that Big Bang will blow it out, and it's continuing, and when it runs out, the gravity that still exists will... Pull it all back together like a little boom, it'll come back together, it'll pop again, and it'll be going like this. Doesn't that sound like fun? How do people come up with those ideas? Well, I mean, that's, that's they can make their and mathematically, you can prove that that's a possibility. But just because I can prove something mathematically, does that mean it exists? I'm not sure I want to go there. I'm not sure I want to go there. Now, other scientists hold the position that the universe is just going to keep on expanding, and as the stars burn out, It'll just be a deep freeze. And there was, a, there was a YouTube video that I've watched several times, mostly for comic relief, because it goes into how long, how the universe is going to end. It goes to graphically. All these things are going to happen. You sit there and say, oh, my goodness. Speculation upon speculation upon speculation. And they don't even call it speculation. They talk about it as though it's fact. And they think we're crazy for taking this book seriously? We take this book literally. Is what we believe half as weird as what they're believing? Well, if you ever watch any of those videos on there, be sure to laugh. Be sure, be, be, be sure to take them as comedy because they are comedy. But let me, let me remind you of something. In Hebrews 1 and verse 3, there's something said about our work. You can turn there with me if you would and keep your finger back in Revelation because we're going to basically be more to revelation but there are some other things that are worth noting here that fit into it. You know, he's the one that's going to finish everything, because right now it says, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, speaking of the Son, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, now he's talking. this is talking about the Son of God. Let's talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the brightness of the Father's glory. He is the express image of His person. He is exactly what the Father is like. And He claimed to be that during His earthly ministry. And that's recorded in the Gospel of John as well. And upholding all things by the word of His power, when He, when he had by Himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the Majesty on high, upholding all things by the word of his power. Now, they, atoms could fly apart. I mean, I guess uh, from what I've read, and I'm not really too clear on this, that the atoms are being held together, although they have charge that repels each other. The Neutrons and protons, they would repel each other and blow apart, and they, they don't know exactly why they haven't done it. Well, I know. Now you do too. Hebrews one 3. He's upholding all things by the word of his power. He's holding them together. Now, when you look over at 2 Peter... You'll see that he's also going to be the one that's going to pull the plug on this whole thing, and that's in the top of page two of our notes. If you're following those, it's the Lord Himself. He's going to release the elements of the universe. Now, this is something that is kind of fun, and I and I uh, since I spend a lot of time with Benjamin, I, I think I think this is oh boy, this is going to be neat. You know, I, I like the banging and crashing, and I like the noise and throwing things around. And so, in Second Peter chapter three, verses ten and eleven. Uh, Here's how the universe is going to end. Is it going to go out in a whimper? Is it going to go out in a a freeze? Is it going to come back and play yo-yo, go boing, boing, boing? Uh, that, That cracks me up, that idea. It says in 2 Peter 3, verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also shall be burned up, and all the works therein shall be burned up. Then he says, seeing that these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conversation and godliness? The day of the Lord will come, and it's going to the day of the Lord. So who's going to be involved? Well, it's going to be the day of the Lord. He's going to be involved in this, and it says the heavens are going to pass away. Now notice, they're going to pass away. It's passive voice. It's not the elements are going to do this. It's not that matter has, somehow I think these scientists must think matter has a personality. Are they, 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 it's almost like personifying matter. what's doing this is going to do that no it's not going to do anything it's only going to do what, it's, what God has programmed it to do it'd be like trying to personify a computer software program it's only going to do what it's written to do and it, it's not going to do what it's not able to do it's not going to do what it doesn't know how to do it's got to be programmed so it's, the universe is going to pass away it's, someone else is going to cause it to happen and what I like here is, this is interesting, it says it's going to pass away with a great noise. Now, you'll notice I put in your notes, literally, and this, this, is, this is a good translation of literally, quickly and with a lot of noise. And I think it was ESV, English Standard Version, says with a roar. So I, that's what I kind of like. I mean, it's like, he's like, roar, as it goes out of existence. But that's how it's going to end. Now, that's not how science sees it. Some, some, would, some scientists would say, well, okay, we'll go along with that, because it's, but they would treat it as a theory. It's not theory, folks. This is how it's going to go. This is how it's going to go. Now, it's going back to the book of Revelation. So we know he's the, he's the one, that's, he's the starter, he's the finisher. And he describes himself, he describes himself further, further by saying, I'm the Lord which was, or which is, and which was, and which is to come. I always have that problem with that. I always want to say who is and was. No, it's who... Or who was and is, but it's is and was. But in any event, when you look at that, that's another way of saying I'm in the, I am the eternal one because he I, he says I am right now and I in the past I was continually and in the future I will be. In other words, he's always been there, he's always going to be there. It's the same as just saying in so many words I am the eternal one, but it's an emphatic way of saying it. So, he is, now this is, this is something that Jesus said when he said, I am, because I am tied back to the God of the burning bush that is deity. And if you look at John eight fifty eight, this is the classic example. If you want to see, uh, for those, you know, if you've ever run across anybody that says, well, Jesus never claimed to be deity. Well, they, they obviously don't believe that John wrote the gospel and with, this, is the, this is the God-breathed word of God. Because if they did accept that, you'd have a hard time proving that he didn't. And here's your best example to show people. Did he say he was deity? Well, let's see. We'll go back to uh, John eight fifty six to start. Your father Abraham, this is Jesus speaking to his to, to the Jews, the religious leadership of Israel. And they're giving him a hard time, obviously. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, Amen, amen, or verily, verily, amen, amen. He says, I believe, I believe twice, which is pretty emphatic. I am, I am, or verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Present tense, I continually am. That's what this means over here, and you see how they took it. Verse 59, they took stones to cast at him, and then, of course, Jesus did, performed another miracle. He just walked right through them and left. has to be a miracle. Can you just imagine him saying, "No, wait a minute, guys, you got it all wrong. Excuse me, I'm, I've got a cake in the oven. I'm going. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. They were going to kill him. So for him to go right through there, it took more than a cake in the oven to do it. It was a miracle. Now, going back then to, to Revelation... Both I am and, and the one who is and was and is to come are claims of deity. It's just plain and simple that there is no other being that can make such a claim as that in, in the whole scripture. No one can claim eternality. It's a person of deity. Now, if, if we're overawed when you, see, when you read this in Revelation and realize who it is that's speaking, this is the one that was the meek and lowly during his earthly ministry. Does it sound like he's meek and lowly anymore? Does it sound like he's going to be pushed around by anyone? No, 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 it does not sound like that at all, because he goes on to say, the Almighty. Now, that is a good word. And by the way, the the uses of Almighty, page six of your notes, I printed out, and we're not going to look at them now, but if you want to look at them later, you can see all the occurrences of that exact word that you have in Revelation. It's only used about ten times, nine of which are in Revelation. And eight of which refer to Jesus Christ. Now, the, comp- the word is, it comes out of a out of Greek that is compounded. You put together the word all and manifested power. Power that's put forth. It's not power that's theoretical. It's not power that's subjective. It's power that's actually put forth and you can see it. In other words, he can use it and he does use some of it at all times. He uses all of it when he wants to. But he has all. Now that all tells me something, and I think it's when we stop and really think about this just a little bit, what does all mean? Well, it means that the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't lack any of the power, and He doesn't need to train Himself up. You know, He doesn't need to go into training. I like to—I've watched, and it's it's a—it's maybe it's a bad habit, but I like to watch some of those old boxing videos on YouTube. And the guys will talk about, well, they're in, they're, they're in prime shape. This guy trained eight weeks for this one fight, ten weeks for this one. They have to train because they don't. the ability isn't always there. And sometimes they do special training because this one boxer does a certain thing. And so he, this guy has to train to do this. They, they don't have the ability. They don't have the knowledge. They have to train. Well, it doesn't say anything. It doesn't say that about Christ. If he has all, he doesn't have to train up. He doesn't have to go uh, into practice It's always there. He's always got this ability. And manifest power. This is the type of power that is, he is able to show as much power as is needed. Now you'll notice I put, if you're looking at the notes, that doesn't mean he has to use all of his power all the time, but only that he can do it and has used that particular part of the power at some point, whether he's using it now or not, is not important. He's got it and he has used it. It's there. You can see it. He's got it all. Now, there's a verse of Scripture that I always come back to when I see this. Hold your finger here and look back at Revelation or Ephesians chapter 3. I think all of us at some point probably would admit that we've made a request in prayer to God, and it's been answered quickly in some cases. And we've stood back and said, wow, God actually did that. Well, why did we ask if we didn't expect it? It's always funny. I don't know if you folks have ever, I can say, I've done that a number of times, that something's been answered. Wow, God really did that. Well, why did you ask him to do it if you didn't think he was going to do it? Well, here's the answer to how God deals with things. We go. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. And, and it's, uh, it's mentioned in your notes. We have it in there. Look what it says here. Now unto him that is able to do what we ask. Now, is that what it says? Notice, notice, he's not able just to do it. It says he's able to do exceedingly. And abundantly, so abundantly would be one thing, but to say exceedingly abundantly, abundantly means a whole lot. Exceedingly abundantly, I don't know how you, how do you take that? That just goes over the top. In other words, you you have no idea how much he can do. Exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask, but you notice and think. Even if you're in the back of your mind, think, well, you know, God could do this, you know. He can do that, and then he can do more besides. Now this is this is what's involved in being Almighty. This one, this one that's coming, this one that people make fun of, this one that's a cuss word today. Do they have any idea who they're dealing with? This is the Almighty. This is who He is. I have sometimes, every time we read through, we read through the Bible in the morning, a couple chapters every morning, six days a week usually, and every time we come through the Gospels and you come to the part where they had Jesus blindfolded at his trial, at his so-called trials, and they smack him and they buffet him, make fun of him. I always think, oh, man, I'd hate to be one of those guys. Do they have any idea who they're dealing with? Do people today have any idea who they're dealing with when they make fun of Jesus Christ and they mock him in artwork? Yeah, they've done a lot of that sort of thing. I'm not even going to go into it. It's one thing I was thinking of, but I'm not even going to mention. It's too, too disgusting to think about. But he's been belittled. But when they find out who he is, it's going to be a different story because when he comes, this is who they're going to be facing up to. This is what he is like. Now, the word, not, the word Almighty is translated, uh, occur, is, it occurs ten times, and nine of them are in Revelation. As I said, page six, you can see them. And it's important to note that eight of those nine refer to Jesus Christ. And there's only two times that Almighty is used otherwise. And you can see them listed there, 2 Corinthians and Revelation 21-22. So, we could stop right here. When Jesus Christ comes... At Armageddon, this one that is coming is not to meek and lowly. This one has all power, all manifest power at his disposal, can do what he wants, knows everything. He's fully God. And these people are going to try and oppose him. Well, they're going to find out how far that goes. Now, that's only part of the story because the story gets just a little bit more interesting at this point. Because the appearance of this greatest general is also described. Now, his character is described, but how he's going to appear at the Battle of Armageddon, I think is described in Revelation, because it wouldn't make sense to put it any other place. We're going to see in a moment. How is he going to appear? Well, if you look at the appearance, and let's go ahead and we're going to read in Revelation chapter 1. And, uh, well, we'll start, we'll go back to verse 11. Verse 11. saying, I'm Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what you see, write in a book and send into the churches, the churches, the seven churches, which are in Asia, under Ephesus, under Smyrna, under Pergamos, under Thyatira, under Sardis, under Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. Now stop there for a moment. Have you ever been sitting and, and been lost in thought, and someone comes up and taps you on the shoulder? And you go, Phew. you ever had that happen? All of us probably have. But if you, ever, if you ever had something happen where someone tapped, you turned around and you fell over like you were dead? Because in verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Now, now wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is John. If you remember in the upper room, John was the one at the last supper that was leaning on the breast of Jesus. If anybody knew Jesus, it was John. If anybody loved Jesus on a human scale, I think it would have been John. Why in the world would he fall dead? He turned around to see this because look what he saw. He saw the seven golden candlesticks. Now, we we know that that's going to be the church. We're already told that represents the church. And in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man. Now, notice like, that's an important word. It means one similar to looking or resembling the Son of Man clothed with a garment down to his foot and girt about the paps around the chest with a golden girdle, and his head and his hairs were white like, white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like or as a flame of fire. And his feet, there you notice his feet, like unto fine brass, as if, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice was as or like or similar to the sound of many waters. Oh my goodness. Now, if John saw this verse 17 showed me two important simple facts if Jesus had appeared to John like this already he probably wouldn't have killed over like he did because he fell over like one that was dead now it says he fell on his feet as dead didn't say he was dead but it was a pretty serious thing now for him to respond that way it means pretty obviously he'd never seen Jesus like that or he wouldn't have passed out would he and that also tells me that that appearance must have been terrifying. It must have been terrifying. Now, why is that important? You'll notice the bold font right there. I like words. You can do a lot of fun things with it. Now, the important part. This is not how we're going to see Jesus at the rapture. This is how they're going to see him at the Battle of Armageddon. This is how they're going to do it. Now, one more example. If you look over John, keep your finger in Revelation. Go back to John 20 for a moment. Uh, I sh- <clears throat> logically should have put that up in another point. So I have to change my outline at some point. But we'll, we'll, we'll cut myself some slack today. I know Courtney will probably get after me afterwards. At least I hope he does. <laughs> no, we have Courtney and I have a lot of fun with that sort of thing. But in, Re- in Romans, uh, John chapter 20... Uh, Jesus didn't appear this way to his disciples, because if he would have, then you might have expected, and we're on the bottom of page two of my notes, if you're, if you're following along. You look at John chapter 20, and verse 19, it says, Then at the, the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, the, when the doors were shut, and the, and the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst of them, and said to them, Peace be unto you. And when he so said that he showed him unto his hands and his feet and his side, and then, and then the disciples were glad when they saw it was the Lord. Now, do you see them acting in fear and falling over? They recognize him. Well, do you, do you, you see anything at all? What surprises me is that it doesn't appear that they were even stunned at the fact he suddenly appeared. If you look at that, look, at that, look carefully in there. Do you see any evidence that they were stunned at his sudden appearance? I mean, he was just there all of a sudden shows you what the resurrection body is going to be able to do. So evidently, they were not at all concerned about it. Even the, the sudden appearance didn't shake them up. And they certainly recognized him. Now, I don't know that you'd recognize, if you, if you hadn't, if you, even if you knew Jesus, would you have recognized the, the picture of Jesus you see in Revelation if he came and stood there? Would they have recognized him? I don't know if they would have, but I sure think they would have done what John did. They would have probably all fallen over. So I believe this is the appearance you're going to see. Now, if you, we're going to go back to Matthew chapter 24 while we're here because Jesus' appearance is going to be commensurate with the reason he's coming. Why is Jesus coming at the second advent? Well, he's not coming to go to, go to coffee and he's not going to say, have your people call my people and we'll do lunch. That, always, that, always, that line always gets to me. That's a silly line. You have your people call my people, and we'll do lunch. Well, he's not going to be here for that reason. If you look at Matthew chapter 24, if you want to know what's going on, it's here. And, and by the way, if I can just make a com- commercial note here, back in, oh, let's see, where's the verse I'm looking for? It says, this, this, ra- this generation shall not pass away, Oh, why am I not seeing it now that I need to see it? Uh, well, you'll have, you have to pardon me. I was, I was thinking of something. There's a verse in here that's been mistranslated, and they said this generation. Okay, verse 34. You need, I, want to, I want you to see this. It's not in the notes, so Courtney, I can't charge you extra for this. But if you want to make it up, this is one of the reasons I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that what's happening in, in the Middle East today isn't going to go anywhere. Why do I say that? Verse 34, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. That word for generation is not translated the way it should be. It's this race, stock, or kind of people. This race shall not pass away. What does that mean? The Jews are not going to be exterminated. They are, till all things are fulfilled, that, that race of people will not pass away. I don't care how much they try. Hitler exterminated an awful lot of Jews. And guess what? There's still a lot of Jews around today. And they've been killing them in the Middle East, right and left. And guess what? There's a lot of Jews in New York City. There's a lot of Jews in Los Angeles that are still here. There's plenty of Jews around. They're not going to pass away. So anybody that thinks that they can get rid of them, just remember that verse 34 of Matthew 24, if it was translated right... That word, is, it's, it, it shouldn't be translated that way here. It's, it's one of them, when Paul spoke, spoke about himself, he said that he was of the race or the stock of Israel. It's the same word. He didn't mean he was born, he wasn't a generation of Israel. What is, that would make no sense. He was of the race of Israel. That's what it's talking about. Here. This race of people will not pass away. This is guaranteed. Anybody that wants to say that they will just doesn't know Scripture. So, but that's, that's not why we're here, but I just wanted you to see that. Now, in Matthew 24, and uh, verses 29 and 30. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall, shall shake, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall the tribes of the earth mourn when they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power... And with great glory. Then you see he's going to send out his angels to clear out the riffraff, as it were. But when he's coming, he's coming in power and great glory. Now, why is he coming? What's going to happen when he comes here? This is setting up the battle of Armageddon. Now, just stop for a moment and ask yourself. What effect would that have? If it says they're going to see him coming with power and great glory, they're going to see this one coming against a darkened sky because you'll notice it says in verse 29, the sun's going to be darkened. Now, I guess, I guess there's a switch that God can turn off. Contrary to what science says, they say if the sun quit, quit sending out its light and energy, we'd be dead in eight minutes. Well, apparently, science doesn't know as much as God does. Sorry to, I'm sorry to break that news to them, but they just don't. So, against the darkened sky, they're going to see the glory of this one, who we know from from his uh, from his appearance to Paul on the road of Emmaus, or the road to Damascus rather. He was brighter than the noonday sun. They're going to see this brilliant light coming, and as it gets closer, they're going to see a person in there. And what person is it they're going to see? The one that we see in Revelation, because he's coming in judgment, and you can see that. If you go back to the book of Revelation again, this image that is here as we go through this and start looking at some of the particulars of his appearance and what it represents, this is not, this is not someone that's coming to do lunch with your people if your people call my people. It's not that situation at all. This is judgment. So now in Revelation one you you'll notice all these comparative things. He said, I saw one like unto the Son of Man. Now, there's no definite article there. It's one like unto a son of man. And what it means is that word for like, and I put this in here, you'll notice there's a G3664. If, anyone, if any of you folks use eSword, it's free Bible software. You can plug this in, and if you're familiar with it, there's, a, there's a, a feature you can use, and you can see every place this word is used without knowing a single word of Greek. You can see every place this word is used and how it's used, and you can do a lot of study that way. And you don't have to learn the language to do it. Now, that's a a pretty nice tool to have, especially when the price is free. That's my favorite price. I buy stuff that's free anytime I can see it. Well, I used to say I'd even take the common cold if it's free, but I'm not so sure I'd say that anymore. So you have one, he's, he's similar to the Son of Man. Now, he represents, now what does that mean? Well, you look and you see on our notes we have that the Son of Man occurs 197 times in 193 verses in the King James Translation. Now, it is true the Son of Man was used during his earthly ministry, but for the sake of time, you can look these references up. Uh, and it's, You can see that it's used generically, which means just a human being. It's just saying it's the it's Son of Man. In other words, it's someone that is born. You notice how it's used generically, and here it says the Son of Man refers to someone that is born of man with normal humanity. So in other words, what we're saying is that John saw someone that looked similar to any other man. Just so he had, you know, arms, legs, you know, feet, hands, the whole business. He looked like that. But that's about as far as the comparison would go, because remember his reaction. So he saw someone that looked like a normal human. So Jesus is not going to look like some kind of phantom. He's not going to come in some bizarre, weird form. form. He's going to come in appearance like a man. And what does it say? Well, this is, this is where it gets really good. This is where you see the judgment aspect. This is, this is going to fit into Armageddon, because remember, Armageddon des- describes him coming and treading the winepress of the Almighty God. And that's going to be literally treading on people. That's going to be something. Now, it says, "...his head and his hairs were white as wool," in Revelation 1.14, "...and uh, his, head, his head and his hairs were like wool, white like wool, and as white as snow." His eyes were as, and you'll notice I, if you're looking at my notes that I have, I, I highlighted that and put the Greek words, the, the Strong's word number with it, so you can look up those if you want to, and you can see it's comparative. So, it, so you'll notice I put in there that one of those two words is, an express, is, an, is used in expressing a comparison as it were something like or as. It's, ad, it's not identifying, it's describing something about another thing. Just like i said earlier if you say he eats like a horse well there's he doesn't have a tail and he doesn't he doesn't neigh and everything else and eat oats but there's some similarities there and it's how much perhaps that person eats and how sloppy they eat or maybe they hang a food bag around their neck i don't know who knows what they'll come up with in the latest fashion but uh so what he saw then was this this as were like it, it so in other words this reveals this character. Now, the word that's so important here is, is this word is white. And there again, I give you the, the number in Strong's if you want to look it up. And it, it's literally, it's that which is, can, is characterized by bright light so bright that it appears white, Bring it shining, and radiant. Now, boy, bottom of page three, that is not how Jesus normally appeared before his disciples or any of the others, except for the Mount of Transfiguration would have been the only other place that has it. Now, what does these symbols tell us about Christ? Well, you know, a word is symbolic only when Scripture makes it symbolic. Now, for example, and this is on the top of page 4 if you're following my notes. For example, consider this word white, how it's used. Now, I have two verses printed out here, so you don't have to turn to them, but you can see them. It says, Neither shall you swear by thy head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. Compare that with Matthew twenty-eight, three. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white like or as snow. Now when you look at that it's pretty obvious that white hair or black hair aren't symbolic. They're just descriptive. The hair is white or black. That's just the color of the hair. But it's pretty obvious that white in white raiment is symbolic. This is a glowing raiment that this You can see why you'd come into a grave, you'd stick your head in the grave, and you see this person with this brilliant glowing white garment you weren't expecting to see. Would that surprise you? Yeah, it would kind of catch you off guard a little bit. Now, the symbolism of this is important because white is used to represent righteousness as it was in the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, this is the word, if you look at Matthew chapter 17, when Jesus manifests his glory and this is something I think that is going to be very important to recognize because he manifested his glory once and during his earthly ministry, he veiled it willingly and we'll show you in a moment. It was the first thing he asked to have back. So it must have been pretty important to him. If it's the first thing he asked in, a, in one of the prayers that we're going to read in a minute, if it's the first thing he asked back, it must have been important to him. So in, in John, Matthew 17... After six days, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, his brother, and brings him up into a high mountain and was transfigured before them. And his face did shine, as, shine like the sun. You notice it says as or like. And his raiment was white as the light. Like the light. And then there appeared with him. So this is the one that the father said, This is my son in whom I am well pleased. So this bright light that you see, I believe, if you remember what is said back in in Philippians chapter 2, let's just for a moment turn there and read it. Uh, Jesus' glory, when men saw him, they did not see him in this way. They did not see this bright shining light that he showed on the Mount of Transfiguration. And when you see what it says in Philippians chapter 2, it's an important reminder because it says this about Jesus in verse we'll read verse five. Philippians chapter two, beginning in verse five. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of the servant, and was made in flesh, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So he took the form of a servant, he humbled himself. He veiled over that glory. Now, I didn't put it in your notes, and I, I'm sorry that I didn't, so uh, you might want to write in John, seven, John 17, because I want you to see this, this glory that he's coming with, the glory that he veiled on earth, it's something he wanted back. And when I read this, it, it struck me, the first time I recognized this, is this was the first thing that Jesus asked for for himself, because if you read John 17, and you find it now, in the first five verses because he's going to say some things. Let's read it. It says, These words spoke Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify the Son. No, glorify. Give glory to the Son. Well, that's just a start. He's going to say more. That the Son may also glorify thee as you have given him power over all flesh that he should give etern- that he should give eternal life to as many as you've given him. And this life eternal is that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou, whom thou hast sent. Now, I read that the way I think it should be. This eternal life is in order that they may know thee. I have finished. I have glorified thee on earth. I have finished the work you gave me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou, glorify thou me, thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. The first request. Now, he said what he came to do. He said, I finished the work, Father. I'm going to give eternal life. He's going to make the provision for it. But what's the first thing he asked for specifically as a request? Give me back the glory that I had. You see, now when he veiled that glory, do you realize that his suffering didn't begin at the cross? There was something that he missed throughout his life. He didn't have his glory. He willingly subjected that. As a, like a servant, it says over in Philippians, like he was a slave. He didn't have to do that. So when you think about the suffering of Christ, I don't know that this was such a physic, terrible physical suffering all the time, but it, if he wanted it back, it must have been something that bothered him. He wanted that glory back, but he failed it. This is how great this one is. So when he comes with that glory... It's going to be unveiled. Now, scripture, white hair is also used symbolically in scripture as of someone that is righteous, but it's also very old and wise. Now, we won't go there, but you can look at Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, because it's, it talks about the ancient of days that with has got white hair and he's very wise, very old. And, of course, it's, it's a reference to deity. It's a reference to God. Most likely the father as he sits on the throne. But now his eyes like a flame of fire, you'll notice in here, this is really something. I mean, this image of this person, is his head and his hair white like wool, and they're shining, this brilliant white glowing color. And then these eyes like a flame of fire. How Now, you stop and think about that. Coming against a blackened sky, and this one is coming, and you see this one coming like that. What, is, what are you going to be thinking if you're on Earth and you're fighting the battle of Armageddon you look up and see this one come? What are you going to think? Oh, hi, this looks like a friendly guy, doesn't it? I don't, I don't think you're going to say, let's do, let's do lunch. I don't think you're going to be saying that. The flaming eyes of fire, what is that? Well, you know, there's, there's really, uh, there's two opinions on this, and you'll notice I listed them in here, and they're, they're kind of closely related. One picture is that this is the all-knowing God from which nothing can be hidden, and we're not going to look at all the references, but that the fact that he's got those burning eyes, it's like they penetrate, they burn through everything. Kind of makes you kind of makes you realize, you know, that uh, when we do things and we think maybe uh, we're doing something, nobody really knows why we're doing it, but it looks good on the surface, so we'll get by. I kind of think somebody can see right through that. You know, if he's got those kind of eyes at, the, at, the second ad, at his second advent, I think he kind of has that ability now to see right through everything. Yeah, he knows exactly what's going on. Now... I think it also could be that it, it looks at the fact he's going to be a judge. And you can see there's some reference there, particularly Revelation 19. Now, uh, for the sake of time, we're not going to go there. But in Revelation 19, you'll see at the, at, the, at the Battle of Armageddon that is described there, there's going to be some real bloodletting, and there's going to be some heavy judgment, and it's going to be fiery, and it's this fire, blazing eye. In other words, this is one that's come to clean house. And so I, since I put in here, if you'll notice in my notes, I said both ideas are closely related, and I, I combine them which I think it means, what this image is, it portrays an image of an all-knowing God from whom nothing can be hidden and who's coming to judge because he knows what's going on. He's going to clean house. The Battle of Armageddon. Now, we're not going into the Battle of Armageddon, but you can read, it's described in the book of Revelation several times. Once where it's talked about how everything is destroyed and it's talked about Babylon, and another time in Revelation 19 when you can see the actual, some of the actual fighting indicated there. It's going to be a gruesome thing, but this is the one that's coming. They're going to look up and see this one with these glaring red eyes. I mean, the white glowing would be one thing, but I think what would be terrifying is seeing those glowing red eyes That because he's going to come, and for the first time, he's going to start showing his wrath. He doesn't do that now. God doesn't show his wrath. It's a good thing he doesn't. He doesn't. He'd clean house. There would be very few things left in this world if he showed his wrath now. So, it also says he has feet like as a fine brass. Oh, now, there you go. Now, this word only occurs one other time, and it's, it's a, like a fine, burnished, polished brass. But other places in Scripture it is used, and, and uh, for the sake of time, we're just going to mention it. You can see that at the bottom of page 4 in our notes, that King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream with an image. that had gold, silver, brass, and iron. And the image was measured in the value of each metal and its strength. So brass in the Old Testament was only second to iron in strength, but it was also considered a precious metal. So brass would be the strongest of the precious metals in the Old Testament of the Bible. Now why is that important? Well, when brass is heated in a, in a, in a, serv- in a furnace, it produces a brilliant, glowing, superheated metal. And it's, and it's very very imposing. Now, the feet under fine gra- under, like unto under fine brass... In Revelation 19, 11 through 21, and I guess we better turn there. uh, Revelation chapter 19, these feet that are like fine brass, the eyes that are burning in judgment. I said this is an Armageddon. Well, here we go. Revelation 19, beginning at verse 11. This is this one that they see coming with those feet of fine brass. Now we're going to really see what happens. Revelation 19, verse 11. And I saw heaven open. And behold, a white horse, and him that sat upon, upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness doth he judge and make war. You see, righteousness, not wrath. Righteousness. And he's going to show his wrath ultimately in the book of Revelation, but not at this particular point. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written which no man knew but he himself. He was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Please remember now, the Word of God, Christ, if you go back to John 1, verse 1, the Son was only a name that that came to him. He was called the Son of God because of the decree. If you go back to eternity past, the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ, the the Son of God, he was known as the Word. You look at John 1, 1, it says that in the beginning was the Word. He was known as the Word. That's his name. That's his eternal name. So it's, so it's making, there's no question. His name is called the Word of God. There's no doubt who this one is. And by the choice, choice of that word, it's emphasizing that this is the God of eternity past. Put aside everything that's happened on earth. Put aside all of the things that happened to him. He's coming like he really is and like he really always was. It makes a lot more, it makes a much stronger impact, a greater emphasis. This one is coming. That's what he was always like. That's how they're going to see him. And they're going to see that glowing. And it says the armies that followed him. Uh, in heaven, the armies which were in heaven followed him on white horses, clothed in fine linen, and white and clean. By the way, that's going to be us. And out of his mouth goes a sharp, uh, sharp sword that he should, with it he should smite the nations and shall rule over them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierceness of and wrath of Almighty God. Treads the winepress of the wrath. How about those glowing? Brilliant, glowing, superheated brass feet, strong, hot, precious. That's what's treading the wine press. That's what they're seeing coming. Now, if that's not a terrifying picture, I don't know what it is. Coming against the darkened sky to see this one with the feet glowing like that, the eyes burning, it's going to be terrifying. These people are going to look up and they're going to see it. You think Friday, you know, Friday the 13th and those movies they had and all the terror and all the horror stories put together, they've got nothing on this event. They've got nothing on this event because this event is not fiction or fantasy. This event is going to happen. And we're going to be on the proper side of it. We're going to be behind him. I would not want to be on Earth looking up to see this. I, I, I just would not want to be there. Now... Now, you notice it says he, and he had the seven, and in his right hand, he had the seven stars out of his mouth on a sharp two-edged sword. and We, we saw that in Revelation. And, of course, we know that the, the, in Revelation 1, the seven stars represent the seven messengers or the seven churches or the pastors. And the sharp two-edged sword pictures his ability to cut between the bones and the marrow in discernment. Now, if you remember back in, in Hebrews, look at Hebrews for just a moment. In Hebrews chapter 4, this one that is coming, he has the ability that his, that his word has. Revela- uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. It says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Not just the mind itself, not just how we think, but what our intentions are. You know things like motivation? Yeah, I said earlier that Christ knows the motivation. We're not going to fool him. When we come to the judgment seat of Christ, the bema, and you find it in 1 Corinthians 3, it's talked about among other places, our works are going to be judged. And part of the way they're going to be judged is going to be for the motivation. Yeah, some people do some really fancy things and you know what? Those things that are done in the name of Christ, someone might be doing it because they want to be seen. I often wonder, and, and I, I, I'll meddle a little bit here, I often wonder if some of these men that are on TV getting all this money and wearing these Rolexes, this, this isn't a Rolex, by the way. I wish it was. No, not really. Uh, I wonder if they would be there if they didn't get the money and fame. I wonder if they were living like Pastor has, where he had to work you realize he retired working full-time and taking care of the church and teaching evening school and doing Wednesday. You realize he did all that. How many of those big names that you, you suppose that are on air with trying to raise money for the Jet to preach the gospel like that one guy did? How many of them do you think would be here? I don't think any of them would be here because Christ is going to read the motives and those people, those works, stand back. There's going to be a big bonfire when you get to the Bema. The pastor always jokes and says, you better stand back when I get there. Well, you better be on the, be the other side of the judgment hall when, when some of these people get there, because there's going to be something else. Now, the, the, the sun shining in the strength. Now, the one thing that we didn't mention in here, in, my, in our notes, and I probably should have mentioned, is what it says in Revelation 1, and we're almost, we're almost done. We're going to stop in a moment. But when you look at this, it says that he, his voice is it's the sound of many waters. Now, it's like the sound of many waters. Now, I don't know if you've ever... I have never been to Niagara Falls. I've seen it, I've heard it, and the roar of it. Now, that sound, that loud, roaring sound, if someone spoke with a voice that had that volume and that power, what would that be like? I think it would scare you. Now, if you go back to the book, and we're not gonna, we don't have time to do it, but if you go back to Exodus, you'll find out when God spoke, according to the book of Hebrews, the people were terrified. They they didn't want to hear anymore. They didn't want to hear it anymore because God spoke so loud, and it got, kept getting louder and louder, and they were terrified. Now, it doesn't say back in, the, in Exodus 19 and 20, it doesn't say that God spoke with a voice like many waters, but it says he spoke pretty loud. And so whether it's many waters or not, that voice, the power and the authority of that voice... That's going to be something. That's going to be something. That's, that's going to add to the turn. I didn't put that in your notes, but so you should mention that that, that, that appearance at the bottom of page five as we come to the end of our notes, this terrifying appearance of the Lord, that's what I believe that the armies that are fighting at Armageddon, that are fighting each other, are going to turn to fight him, and this is what they're going to see. Now, this is how the battle goes. Now, I know we've, we've heard about the battle of Armageddon, but do you realize now that what they're going to turn to see it's going to probably paralyze them. Just like when a lion roars, they're paralyzed. What are they going to do when they see him coming? I think the whole, I think everybody's going to turn to fight and they're going to be paralyzed. They stand there with their mouth open. They won't know what to do. Now this morning, I hope as we, as we close, that as you think about this world we're living in, and you look at all the wickedness that goes on, that you don't forget who's going to make it right. The character of this one. Now, those that, some of the wicked aren't going to get to go to the Battle of Armageddon. I know that. But there's going to be one sitting on, on the great white throne. Now, he may not appear like this, but they're not going to get away with it either, are they? The great white throne, people are going to be judged according to their works. No one is going to get away with it. So, folks, when you see this stuff happening out there, it can eat at you. I know it can. It drives me crazy when I see people doing things. How many innocent babies are aborted? That's Murder. You think that doesn't matter to God? Oh, they're going to answer for it. They're going to answer for that. Everything they do, they're going to get. So take heart, folks. This is the one. If He can do this at the Battle of Armageddon, He's going to take care of it at the Great White Throne too. What isn't, what isn't covered here is going to be covered at the Great White Throne. I hope, Father. I hope for, uh, further that I hope that, that none of us are ever underestimate what Christ is like, because the Lord we serve. He's going to come in this fashion. In other words, he's got that kind of power and authority. He's got that kind of glory. None of us have ever seen that. I wouldn't want to see it face to face what John saw. I think I'd probably do the same thing. Probably all of us would. But this is the one we serve. And if we stand in awe and reverence of him, we really should. That's why when people see, please don't ever be guilty of speaking flippantly about the Lord Jesus Christ. This is who he is. This is what he's like. And he is going to conduct the greatest battle in history. And boy, it's going to be over. And he's going to be victorious. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful now that we know something that we should know. And that we need to know. That our Lord, when he comes back, is going to make things right. He's going to take care of the world system. He's going to take care of his enemies. They're going to pay, Father, for what they've done. They're not going to escape. And he will... Take care of everything. And ultimately, at the great white throne, Father, everything will be settled for those that aren't at the Battle of Armageddon. And we're thankful for that, Father. We're thankful that this one that is coming may be terrifying to the world, but he isn't to us. He's our Savior. And we're so thankful, Father, that he did this work for us and that he didn't have to do it, but he laid aside his glory, though he wanted it, and he humbly was a servant, and he went to the cross. He didn't have to do any of that. And we're so thankful that this one that will be so terrifying isn't terrifying to us today. And he never will be. He's our Savior. Thank you, Father. Thank you that you've delivered us from this terrible future and the terrible fate that's going to affect so many people. Dismiss us now with your blessing, we ask in our Savior's name. Amen. Amen.